bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Tim Thurley, welcome to the Round Canada Podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. Awesome. Yeah, glad glad to have you. I've uh, been following all of your uh, tweets on Twitter and your recent news stories uh, published, and I just reached out and said, you look like a very knowledgeable, evidence-based person to get on the podcast to fill in our listeners on what's going on on the state of Canada's gun control debate. And so um, I'm, I'm glad you... Glad you could come all the way from the Northwest Territories, Canada, to our our studio here in British Columbia and have this conversation, uh, just like just like Joe Rogan. So, Tim, you are a uh, a firearm expert. Uh, areas of expertise, as I understand from following you, is firearm policy and firearm homicides. You did master's study related to those areas. And um, I just, I really admire what you've been putting out because you're in this whole debate, uh, which is very emotional and a lot of misinformation. You're trying to stay very focused to uh, evidence uh, and and logical arguments and steps and everything you've been, been putting forward appreciate anybody who's willing to speak and back up what they're saying with you know with some some facts and evidence so may unless there's something you want to add to your credentials or whatever um what i thought we would do is just kind of tell us so the last time i kind of like spoke to our listeners about the gun control debate of course was the amendments back in november that um were had labeled a bunch of um you know, standard hunting firearms throughout the country really got the hunting community fired up. Um, you know, the previous um, bills kind of hit sport shooter firearms, then the hunters got it in November. And then, of course, those two amendments were were revoked, I think, just shortly after Christmas. And that's kind of where I've left it in, in my dialogue with our listeners and what I'd like you to do before we get into the weeds on things, is um, maybe just fill us in on what's been happening in the state of deb- the debate, the gun control debate, since those two amendments were were withdrawn by the federal government. Well, uh, quite a bit has happened. Uh, these two amendments, as you mentioned, targeted a number of uh, very common firearms in Canada, including both from the sport shooting and the hunting communities, uh, as well as the subsistence hunting communities, uh, especially Indigenous communities. And there was quite a bit of outrage um, about those. The Assembly of First Nations passed a, uh, a emergency resolution opposing it. A number of provinces opposed it as well. And then, of course, um, hunters came through in a big way. The Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters sent something like uh, a few hundred thousand to a million emails in the first week alone. It was uh, it certainly woke up hunters and the Liberal Party did withdraw those amendments. Uh, I should note that just because those amendments are withdrawn, there are still 80 or so odd 
amendments that have been proposed to this bill, and we don't know what they all are. So actually, we, I would say we don't know what any of them are besides G4 and 46. There are a few areas where we can infer what they might be, um, and we can talk about that a bit later on. But uh, generally, so what happened when just before the amendments were withdrawn is the opposition, realizing how much heat there was on this issue, got together and forced adi additional um, meetings in SECU, which is the... Uh, the committee for uh, on public safety and they forced an additional i believe it was four hearings so the last one concluded um, midway through march and these were entirely on the topic of those withdrawn amendments even though they had already been uh, withdrawn so a number of individuals appeared and, and spoke to those including uh, jim shockey spoke to those a number of gun control groups came and spoke to those um, I think Matt Hipwell at Wolverine Supplies went and spoke uh, to committee about those. Uh, we had an Olympic shooter as well who appeared there. And they discussed the withdrawn amendments because the intention here and the intention that the Liberals have expressed essentially since this uh, withdrawal happened was to reintroduce something. And the core... Uh, what they call assault-style weapons, which is a, it's a misnomer, um, not to not to swear, but I think I think Matt Gurney put it pretty uh, put it pretty well when he said, whenever you see style, think uh, bullshit. So whenever there's style is appended, there's always this sort of weird uh, discussion that happens where it becomes really hard to define what exactly they mean, and. The problem that they ran into, I, I think, and what caused them to withdraw these amendments and come back and rework them was partly because it's a very, very hard place to draw a line that won't accept, won't upset these constituencies that they want to keep happy, but will also ban the firearms that their other constituencies really, really want banned, um, whether that's evidence-based or not. This is it's just the politics of the matter. So they withdrew those amendments to try and two theories, either rework them to find something that's more acceptable or buy some political time uh, to uh, pass those same amendments. We don't know which is going to happen. We assume they're going to be reworked to an extent, but nobody outside of the public safety minister's office and possibly no one in the public safety minister's office knows exactly how that's going to play out right now. Yeah, because we we have seen some of, you know, the, the bills introduced concurrently with some world event. So if I remember C-21, the handgun freeze actually came shortly after that Texas sh shooting and you know the federal government was ripped apart in the in the media because of sort of you know waiting for that event in order to bring the legislation forward so yeah i could honestly see them those amendments coming forward again after you know something else happens we've we've seen that in canada already so hmm interesting mm -hmm. and it it may not necessarily be uh, an event in, in that sense, such as a mass casualty event, but it could also be 
um, something to do with, and not to give them ideas, but uh, a way of addressing issues uh, surrounding crime, being seen to do something on crime. It could be a way of um, distracting from another political issue that's more damaging. There are plenty of options, plenty of reasons it could come up, but it is certainly correct to say that the past two introductions that we've seen, even though those have been planned in advance, both the Ordering Council and C21, uh, they really did focus around events which happened um, either in Canada or in the United States. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Politics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then, yeah, I, rem I remember there was a number of testimonies given to the um, to the Public Safety Committee. Um, mm -hmm. What what good were those? Like, I mean, they were speaking to the impacts of the amendments that were withdrawn. Like, I, I never quite understood that. So these, these meetings that happened after the amendments had been withdrawn, you're wondering a bit more about? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like you mentioned, the one Jim Shockey spoke at. Like, he yeah. was speaking to what the impact would have been had the two amendments to C-21 gone forward and you know, got some, got some hunting firearms in it. I like mm -hmm. if they're withdrawn, why did people need to, you know, talk to, to the subcommittee about them? Yeah. Well, part of the reason is because they're coming back in one form or another. Okay. Uh, okay. The, so they wanted to consult Canadians. <laughs> well, yeah. And this is a really important point, actually. I'm glad you said the word consult because committee hearings aren't, aren't consultation. And, and I, I spent a little bit of time in Ottawa uh, committee hearings are important. They're a great place to hear from experts. They're a great place to hear testimony, but they don't replace, and a number of MPs, mostly opposition MPs, did mention this, they don't replace going out and talking to Canadians. They don't replace uh, the consultation part of the policy development process. And I think that was what the Liberals got a lot of flack for uh, skipping, because Indigenous nations, especially hunters, were very, very surprised by what they saw. They weren't consulted and told, okay, there's going to be some stuff you don't like in here, but we're taking your feedback on board. They were just, these amendments were just shown to them uh, when they were presented, essentially, which I think was a, a big cause of a lot of that anger. Uh, in terms of why people continued to speak at those meetings, um, part of it is because the opposition just wants to continue having those hearings. Uh, anything, even if it's about the withdrawn amendments, that was clearly an issue, what we call a shield issue for the government where they were playing defense. And it's always in the opposition's interests to have the government playing defense. So I'm sure they wanted to to really display the damage those amendments would have done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So then, then if you've kind of like, quote unquote, shot holes in those amendments and then they show up in six months from now, then yeah. you've kind of established the the flaws in in their approach. So, hmm, mm -hmm. OK, that's correct. It's all and, about all about tactics. <laughs> yeah. And, and these hearings, hearing from expert witnesses, really, it should change minds and it should help. Whether it does anymore, especially now that committee hearings are televised, I'm I'm not so sure about that uh certainly there's tinkering around the edges um but a lot of it comes down to being able to justify in my view and having watched these hearings a lot of the questions and the angles from mps appear to be attempting to justify the position they already have 
through expert testimony rather than genuinely taking that on board, which is something that is true of more about our politics than the gun issue right now. Um, but I think is, is very unfortunate. Okay. Okay. So now since those, those additional sessions and more recently, the, the MASH casualty commission report came out uh, on the Nova Scotia shooting two years ago. Is there, is there any other things in your mind that have happened in, in between there in sort of the debate other than just all the toxic stuff that's going on in social media between the various, the various groups? Has there been any, anything in your opinion that is worth knowing about as far as this whole debate? I think those have been the big two. Okay. Uh, however, I think there is something to be said about the perceived, well, it's real, um, statistically speaking, it's real, a uh, rise in criminality around Canada and the nature of perceived criminality. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, well, I hope you, I hope you weren't, you know, accidentally seeing the video of that gentleman who was unfortunately assaulted and, and passed away in Vancouver at the Starbucks there. Um, yeah. I've seen the news story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a, quite a, quite a shocking image and uh, quite a shocking event. And then the, the individual in Toronto, uh, the I believe 16 year old who was sitting on a bench and was, and was stabbed there. So the, you have these high profile events in Canada, as well as the murder of police officers, which is generally speaking a very rare event in Canada, and now we've seen it multiple times in just the past few months. Yeah, uh, I think there is widespread concern around not just criminality in Canada, but around what seems to be the erratic nature of it. So, what I mean by that is that my, and this is this is going back to my childhood, but when I was younger, uh, there was a certain, I think rationality is probably the right word that could be used or ascribed to criminal activity. So if an individual, and I don't mean that in the sense of it being a positive, just, just in the sort of pure economic sense, um, when we're talking about somebody who is mugging another individual, for example, generally speaking, they're in that because they want that money, they want the sort of immediate um, reward of that for another purpose. Um, we can, we obviously don't like that as a society and we're scared of that, but the defense to that is, you know, give them your wallet and, and walk away and you'll be okay. And then we see right now this rise in crime, which is often, there's certainly a perception. I think a fair bit of it is addictions related, unfortunately where the nature of the attack seems a lot more random, a lot more surprising, um, not necessarily connected to anything that a sort of sober Canadian going about their business would, you know, perceive as a risk, like not flashing fancy jewelry or anything. Nobody expects yeah. that asking um, somebody inside a Starbucks to stop vaping is going to result in them being stabbed in front of their family. And I think that especially has unnerved 
many Canadians. I've certainly um, been hearing from friends of mine who aren't necessarily involved in the gun debate. They don't particularly care about politics, but have started to express more concerns about the random nature of violence and being safe when they're wa out walking or especially in larger cities. And that issue, I think keeping in mind that issue is, is very important toward understanding the debate around crime in this country and where it might go. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, because it's from looking at the U.S. Um, and those sort of behavioral things in society, we've seen these things where there'll be something like a like a mass shooting and then these spikes in firearm sales. Hmm. And, 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 you know, if it wasn't for the national handgun freeze of C-21, I would suspect we would probably be seeing handgun sales probably going through the roof in Canada right now because of the things that have, that you've just described that have happened since, since Canada. And, and I think, and I've seen some of that on social media, like people literally going, you know, I'm not a gun owner and I don't hunt or whatever, but I'm kind of at the point now where I'm thinking about getting a firearm for for self-protection and mm -hmm. and uh and and it's kind of you know that that dynamic and then of course then the other side is you know here's all the reasons why people should have less access to firearms mm -hmm. um this is another reason saying you know we should we should have less access to firearms, you know, after each one of these events. So it's a really, oh man, it's just a crazy, um, crazy world out there, how people mm -hmm. are reacting to these things. And yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's been some really, really weird and unnerving, I think is a, is a good way of putting it. It's almost like what we've seen in the last couple of months are just like acts of violence just for the sake of violence. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they're not <clears throat> they're not after something, you know, like a break and enter or or a carjacking or whatever. It's just yeah. violence for the sake of violence and crazy. Yeah, it's it's uh, the the one place there where I think I might disagree is that I'm not sure we would have seen a run on handgun sales without the freeze, uh, at least for the purposes of self defense. And that's just because I think in general, people aren't, I, I mean, I know in practice it does happen, but uh, generally people who are handgun owners, I think are um, people who are kind of sport shooters or collectors, and that's really their prime impetus in Canada. However, I, I do, I'm not going to exclude the possibility that people may have looked at more long guns for defense, um, even though that's not strictly speaking a purpose for which you can acquire them, um, but I'm sure that's in the back of some people's minds. Uh, there's also this case in uh, Mississauga or Halton, Southern Ontario, where a, um, a number of individuals came in to uh, uh, stab or, or rob the, the gentleman's mother and uh, the gentleman returned fire and, and one of them died and now this is before the courts. So, I, I'm a little bit cautious when it comes to self talking about self-defense in Canada just because the law is so complex and uh, case by case. But what I would say is that I have noticed um, 
And I don't have polling data on this, so it's very hard to back up scientifically, but I have noticed an increase in people asking questions about things like pepper spray. Why is pepper spray not allowed to um, be carried for defensive purposes? Um, I've even seen discussion about body armor, which I never saw outside of certain gun forums before oh, the past year. <clears throat> that's an interesting one. I haven't seen that, so yeah. that... That'll be kind of weird at the beach this summer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The tan lines on that. Uh, not sure. Not sure if those would be very flattering. Oh well. Yeah. Better better to be pale than dead. That might be the be the bumper sticker for for body armor sales. No, I haven't I haven't seen that one. Interesting. And I want to emphasize. I think Canada is a, is quite a safe country. It's our crime levels right now are not above where they were in the 1990s. Um, but I think the nature of that crime is, is what has people concerned and also the relatively sudden increase from the close to all-time lows we had in 2014 and how quickly that's gone up in the past uh, in the past few years, the past nine years yeah. or so. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely almost on a daily basis in this country is some way, shape, or form. There's some event that's having a very polarized influence on the gun control debate as, as I've seen it in social media. So, um, people are using everything they can, um, on, on both sides of the debate for, for, for and against positions. Like, Mm -hmm. um, okay. Now do you want to skip forward to just kind of the mass mass casualty reporters or some other kind of piece in there that's important in this, this story? I think we're probably going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to the Mass Casualty Commission report, so it might be better okay, to skip okay. that. I have a few things that I can talk about in the context of that as well. Okay. So maybe just give people just like a the high level here uh, on what that is and when it came out. Okay. So the uh, the commission report, I believe it came out uh, yesterday, yesterday morning. We're recording this on the, uh, on the Saturday, so it came out on Friday morning. And it was a response to the uh, the Port of Peak massacre um, in Nova Scotia, and as I'm sure a lot of individuals will remember, that was um, one of the most tragic mass homicides in Canadian history. It was a uh, a horrific event where an individual went on a rampage um, over the course of many hours and killed, uh, I believe it was twenty two or twenty three people, twenty two yep, people. Yep. <sighs> And they established not a full and not a full inquiry, public inquiry, but this this commission, a commission um, which was designed to uh, respond and provide some recommendations. It was thought, and it did come out, that the main focus of this inquiry, this commission, was on the uh, the RCMP and the RCMP's conduct and response. However, uh, they did release a very comprehensive series of reports, and I use the word comprehensive advisedly, I'll come back to that, um, discussing almost every aspect uh, that they could possibly have discussed that was tangentially related to this particular topic. It certainly did not focus on just this mass homicide incident. Uh, and what I found especially uh, relevant to the C21 debate, at least, was this chapter, it's uh, chapter four of their recommendations, and there is a lot to do with firearms in there. 
So, yeah, like the yeah. general stuff that you and I own and the amount of ammunition I have in my, mm -hmm. my locker and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I've seen, yeah, that stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And oh. some of those are, I, I certainly have some critiques of yeah. that section of the report. Yes. So, uh, a few weeks ago, you had a, an article published uh, in the newspapers, national newspapers, uh, headlines, if I remember right, don't believe gun control advocates who say bans would save lives. So, you know, the entire narrative that we're hearing around the gun control debates is, is prohibiting firearms, individual firearms, groups, names, variants, all of this sort of stuff in the name of public safety. It's, it's all being done in order to make communities safer and reduce these crimes that, that we were talking about last fall. Uh, under that auspices, a whole bunch of hunting firearms got labeled as needing to be prohibited to make communities safer and reduce firearm-related uh, violent acts in the country. And so that 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 whole, the whole entire, as I see it, the whole entire premise is about fewer guns equals safety, safer public. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, your, your article, I'll let you speak to it was, was kind of sort of speaking to that logic, to that, to that argument. So maybe take, take that story away and, and break down for us, um, you know, that, that argument. Okay. So I think the debate on gun control can generally be subdivided into three very rough categories. And those categories are the means availability um, hypothesis, which is that if you limit availability of the means of committing crimes, then incidence rates of those crimes will go down. You'll have fewer of them. Um, method substitution, which is a important subcomponent of the debate, but I use it to refer to this more theoretical section of the debate as well. And that is the idea that if you take away uh, the method that somebody would use to commit a crime, it, it doesn't really matter unless you address the underlying reasons um, because they will either pick another method or they will find another source uh, for the same method to substitute. And then you have the more guns, less crime thesis, which is the idea that, you know, there's a deterrent effect and that the more guns there are in society, the fewer crimes there'll be because, you know, uh, everyone will be scared of, of, of committing crimes. And all three of those have pretty staunch defenders. I certainly tend to align more strongly with the middle one, the method substitution hypothesis, where... Yeah, individuals will generally find another way uh, or another source for the means to commit a crime. And unless you address these underlying causes, uh, you're not really going to, uh, to be able to address actual criminality. And it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a waste of money to spend so much time and energy prohibiting firearms when we could be spending a lot less of that on addressing the root causes of crime and get a lot further ahead. Okay. Yeah. 
So the 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 idea of the method of substitution would be as if a person wants to, you know, um, murder somebody, yeah. and they want to use a firearm, then if they can't go buy one, then mm-hmm. they're, they're going to go, okay, well, that house over there, I think they probably have some, so I'll break into it. And then it's like, oh, I can't get into the into their um, their safe. So then, okay, then now what do I do? Um, then the next thing might be is like they're on a country road somewhere and it's like, oh, there's some hunters. They got some firearms and it's like, oh, they've like stopped on the side of the road. So they, you know, you run over and, you know, hit them with a baseball bat and steal their vehicle and drive off and get their firearms. Like they're going to do something to carry out like their act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and of course this is a this is a, to an extent a generalization. This is really referring more to the overall incidence of criminality than to whether or not this particular individual case would have happened or not. But I think there's actually I think Canada is an excellent example um, of where we notice the method substitution effect in real life. So Porta Peak is one of those cases. Um, actually, the three largest mass homicide incidents, if not if not more, in Canada since um, following the Ecole Polytechnique massacre were all examples of method substitution or source substitution. So when it came to port peak the individual could not obtain his firearms legally in Canada. So he went to the, to the United States. He uh, used, I believe, a Nexus card to avoid searches. He illegally acquired those firearms in the United States brought them to Nova Scotia, hid them in his house, and uh, eventually went on his horrific uh, shooting spree. So this is an example of source substitution. Uh, the second um, most attack, the second mass homicide with most fatalities since then was um, in uh, Saskatchewan, where on uh, a Cree First Nations reserve, um, two individuals uh went around and stabbed people to death. Um, that's the second, the second most fatalities in a mass homicide um, since in the, in the past what, 30 years. And then the third one, of course, is the Toronto van attack, so, which killed, I believe, 11 people. So you have all of these incidents where individuals who would have not likely not been able to get a firearm through our licensing system uh which is a good thing it's a good thing that they couldn't shows the licensing system is working shows the canadian gun control system in that sense is functional but they just picked another method that was easy and accessible and there is to an extent very little that you can do to prevent someone from picking another method like that you can't you can't put pedestrian guardrails alongside every single sidewalk in the country. It's just not going to happen. Um, There's only so much you can do to insulate uh, people from the causes uh, or from the methods of criminal activity without addressing the causes. And that's really the the critical part that I try to get into in my article, where we are about to spend a significant sum of money as Canadians uh, just on the ordering council firearms, never mind the massive addition to that list that would have come about as a result of C-21. That is well into the realm of, I mean, I, I would, 
I imagine the Order and Council buyback will cost a minimum a minimum of $1 billion. Uh, at minimum, quadruple that for the G4 and G46 amendments. And, and that's assuming a reasonable compliance rate. That's a lot of money that we can spend on other services, which we know will make more of a difference to reducing both incidents of homicide and mass homicide. Right, right. Okay, so that's... I mean, so that's the crux of the article there in the gun, the gun advocates, the, you know, the, the gun ban advocates are focused on just getting as many possible firearms prohibited as, as, as possible. But your counter argument is, is here's examples even recently in Canada that method substitution still allows the criminal activity to take place so you're not doing anything of your ultimate goal of increasing public safety by putting all of this energy into legally held firearms okay yeah. and that's something that we is reasonably well established from research in other countries so when we examine uh, canadian uh, the Canadian research history. Um, I collaborated with uh, Dr. Kaylin Langman at the University of McMaster uh, to submit a brief to the Security uh, Committee, uh, the Public Safety Committee. And in that, we went through a series of studies from Canada and from Australia and from uh, referencing a few other countries. And I referenced a few in my National Post article as well, where really you don't see many if any statistically significant changes that can be in any way attributed to the uh, homicide rate to sorry to the intervention which is the the gun bans that you saw in australia or bill c68 in canada or bill c17 um, and it's sort of additional prohibitions i imagine that in if c21 goes through in 10 or 15 years when we have the data to look back at it we will also not see an effect that is statistically right. significant when it comes to I, fire i believe it was in one of your articles where you had talked about like the prohibition back in the 70s where automatic actions yeah. became prohibited that that never changed homicide rates with firearms even mm -hmm. since the 70s which you know, that, that's still cropping up right now, about semi-automatic and five-round magazines and still people confusing, talking about machine guns and this sort of stuff, you know, yeah. as, as misinformation. And even then, you said it didn't even make a difference back then. So, Not that we have wow. been able to determine, no. Um, I actually, uh, I just talked about Dr. Langman. Uh, it was his article that I was citing in that case. Um, okay. He wrote about mass homicide in Canada and... He didn't just use firearm mass homicide as his uh, as his reference. He actually discussed mass homicide in general. And when looking at all of these interventions, he didn't actually find a difference um, when it came to mass homicide with or without a firearm before and after these intervention points. So we have, I mean, mass homicide is something that is very difficult to measure precisely because it is so rare. Um, this is not something that happens all the time. In, um, I mean, it certainly happens more often in the United States. But the United States is a massive outlier. So people often point to the success of, um, I had a, a friend who did this uh, recently, 
uh, and I provided a correction, uh, they said, well, the, the United Kingdom banned all of these guns and after they had a school shooting and they haven't had one since. And it's like, well, they, had, they only had one before. So there's not exactly any kind of statistical significance or, or inference that you can draw from that. Um, they were extremely rare before. They're extremely rare now. Uh, but then can... there was like the, the Paris subway thing and, you know, it's like so, you know. Yeah, well, and certainly, I mean, yeah, we've seen this in a, in a wide variety of locations, and there's not a lot of good evidence. I mean, even from the United States, which I hate citing because it's, it's an awful outlier when it comes to almost all policy. And in Canada, I think we reference it far too much. But even if you look at the Rand Corporation's meta-analysis of um, the efficacy of various types of firearm legislation they do find some limited evidence that things like background checks work licensing works and these are all things which in canada everyone agrees on um, i don't know many people who advocate for the abolition of the licensing system um, but when it comes to actual bans on different types of firearms there's no conclusive evidence that they work at all yeah no so you know, if, if, if the evidence is, you know, there's emotions, you know, are, are involved here and just people's opinions about, you know, firearms and stuff. But, but so why is it such a focus in Canada right now on, is on firearms when the greater good is serving public safety? Like, how does, like, so many people you know, involved in governments and, 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 the um, you know, the various groups, why are they, do you think they're so locked on firearms when objectively, you know, if you look at it, a reasonable person should assume that the focus should be somewhere else, but it's not like, yeah. why? Well, even if we look at methods, I mean, the most common method of homicide in Canada is stabbing. Yeah. And it's not and, and we've seen absolutely, even just with the ones that we've talked about recently, yeah. I personally have not seen anything in the media talking about carrying a knife. Mm -hmm. Like a concealed knife and like a weapon. Like this, the whole conversation about knives as weapons and carrying them and ways of, you know, dealing with that has not come up. Well, there's a there's a a famous comic, and I often I don't this this one stuck with me doing some research on on various cultures of gun control, and and it, it's the sort of a picture of somebody you know lying down on the ground, and they've they've been stabbed, and the person says, oh my god, they've been stabbed. You know, we need to you know do something about the about crime. We need to do something about the causes of violence. Oh my god, they've been beaten to death. We need to do something about crime and the causes of violence oh they've been shot we need to do something about guns and i think that that's certainly a, you know it's a skewed it's a bit of a biased comic but i think it does speak to an underlying cultural truth um where guns are seen as the symbol of like a particular symbol of violence uh that is especially it's, it's unfamiliar to a lot of people, I, I believe. Um, everyone has a knife in the kitchen. 
nobody nobody has not held a knife nobody in canada has not held a knife um so it's just not there's no you don't have that same sense of um mystery to it to an extent i think that's a that's certainly a component um i think in canada we look at the united states a lot and i think that's a big problem i think it's a problem in many areas beyond the uh the firearm debate it gets us into a lot of trouble where we look around the world and we look at the united states and we say well that's what we need to not be like or that's what we need to uh to not do we need to do something that's different from them and yeah i mean they're they're the source of all of our entertainment books, movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, just even everything like, you know, the, the lawless West and cowboys and, you know, and all that kind of stuff like that's American history, which yeah. from what I understand was a very, very short period of time in American history, like a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like a whole century of that. And, you know, just, and everything from like, we grew up, we might as well have been in the States. Like if, if you're my age, like the Vietnam war, the Korean war, uh, even the Gulf war, there's people now that weren't even alive when that, I remember watching that on television, you know, uh, um, that's, that sort of stuff like that, that all that messaging and everything, Hollywood movies and whatnot, right? Like that's that's consumed by Canadians. Like it's mm-hmm. Canadian history, like it's Canadian, uh, you know, part, part of Canada as well. And of course there's a tremendous amount of firearms and war and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's where the whole thing of locking on to the AR 15 comes from in mm-hmm. Canada. And this debate is cause it's been so visible and, us entertainment really you know maybe yeah. more than anything that yeah the oh, air 15 man. is a very salient example and i think it's it's probably the best example of how this debate from the united states has spread and infected um debate and toxified debate in our country uh, i think a lot of people look at the air 15 in the united states they see it being used in shootings um, that's partly because it's simply one of the most popular rifle platforms in the united states um, but people then saw it prior to 2020 in Canada and said, oh, this gun that's being used for all these mass shootings in the United States, it's, it's legal here. It's allowed. Why is that the case? It's only, you know, it's a matter of time. But they didn't account for the differences in our systems and our cultures and our society, which meant that the AR-15, certainly legally owned ones, sourced in Canada were extremely rarely used in crime, including mass shootings in Canada. And indeed, the only instance we have of one really being used in a mass shooting in Canada is when they were smuggled from the United States illegally. So it's just this example of how you have this very culturally salient item, which has... uh, it has provided a symbol for the debate in Canada. This that's very powerful, despite that it, that side of the debate, that concern doesn't really apply in Canada, and honestly, never really has. Uh, the article that my article was in response to was a piece by a group called Doctors for Protection from Guns in the United States. Uh, they wrote it 
they're a Canadian group, but they wrote it uh, in Time magazine in the United States. And they made the case that if Canada's not careful, we could end up on the U.S. path to, um, to gun violence. But we can't. It's, we're a different country. We have different systems when it comes to firearm licensing. We have a uh, entirely different uh, culture and set of mores and, and social values that's ascribed to it. Uh, despite the fact that guns are extremely prevalent here, we just, in Canada, just don't have the same uh, discussion, social factors, uh, control systems, any of these underlying aspects which could result in us becoming like the United States on firearms. So I just felt that the, the very thesis there was not only damaging to the Canadian debate and how we talk about guns, but just self-evidently wrong to anyone who knows anything about Canadian gun culture. Right, right. Yeah, I've been seeing a tremendous amount of criticism being levied at the gun like proponents, the gun control proponents of, about that always drawing from the US and making making the comparisons and and um just doesn't seem to matter. I mean, I you know, I've seen stuff like the poly group on social media like anything anywhere in the world you know that happens they can see well see this is why this we need to move forward with taking guns away in in Canada because of this thing that happened in you know wherever Spain or South America or something like that and right and people are like what are you talking about right like it's it's now do you think that this this is all like for political reasons that have nothing to do with the fact that taking guns away or making more uh, makes and models prohibited will increase public safety like is it just is it being used by the government for another purpose and what i'm i mean you're going to get into opinion areas here but it's like is it is it just something to put out there knowing that the opposition is going to attack it? But if enough people can go, oh, yeah, no, we think all guns should be banned. And this is the government that's standing up for that. Then come election time, it's like they have more people that are going to vote for them. Like, like, is it do you think there's any or is this tinfoil hat stuff? But is there. Is there any merit to the fact that it's just a sensationalized topic that can be used at a federal political level to try to grow the gap between the, the two parties come mm. election time? Like, yep. I, I don't know. Yes, I, okay. I, yep, okay. I fully agree. I don't think that's tinfoil hat at all. Uh, maybe I spent too much time in various political circles, but I, I don't think that's a tinfoil hat theory, and I, I can expand on why. Um, before I get there, I do want to say that when it comes to some of these groups, I think that I, I always try to assume the best in people and certainly to other participants in this debate. Um, sometimes it's tricky. Um, but I, I really I really do try. So I, th I think when we look at certain groups that are consistent advocates for this, um, Policy Souvient is one. Um, I think genuinely they, you know, were, were victims of a, a very 
a very tragic and awful, awful event and, and want to prevent that happening again. I, 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 I don't think that their solutions are solutions that are going to work for that. I don't think they're right. Um, but I'm not, I don't want to question their, their motives. Uh, when it comes to, and I'm sure I know, I know, you're, I know you're not either. I just want to clarify where I stand on that. No, no, I, and I agree with you on that. Like I'm, and and I, uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, I sort of see like a level of rhetoric as well on the pro the pro gun side as well, where you can kind of be like, okay, like that's that probably is a bit more tinfoil hat type stuff. Uh, we see it in the 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 toxic debates that are going on about the UK's uh, trophy hunting import ban like you, you see these these same patterns in people and it's like people and and I do believe this for the most part everybody is their intentions are coming from a good place like you know nobody wants to see a mass shooting at a public institution anymore a public education institution uh, you know, or, or whatever. And then another side doesn't want to be in a country where citizens can't have firearms at all and hunt. So like, I mean, I, I do believe that, you know, people are coming from a good place. I think people reach a point in these debates where they go so far, where they start getting frustrated. They start saying things, they can't back things up. It gets personal, becomes personal attacks. We even see that for God's sake, come election time. You know, it starts out with their platform and their campaigns and a balanced budget. And the next thing you're known, it's like so-and-so's of this and that and don't vote for them. And you're like, oh my God, when's this going to be over? And so that then, now we talked about this before the show. In one of your articles you wrote a couple of years ago, you talked about the confusion and dysfunction in this debate is on purpose. And now part of these debates, which I think sometimes starts to make people look bad, is there's, it almost seems like there's stuff being interjected in there just to, just to confuse the public debate, like just for the purpose of messing up the debate. So nothing is clear. No, no side is clear. Like, is there anything to that that you think is going on here as well in Canada? Yeah, I do. And I don't think it's necessarily always born from ignorance or born from malice. I think it's all, it can be born from, from just pure ignorance um, or a lack of knowledge. Uh, but I think there are two aspects to, to touch on here. And, and the first one is when you were discussing, uh, is there an electoral reason for this? Is there a reason the liberals keep coming back to punching on the gun file? Absolutely. It's much easier if you're a member of the Liberal Party to run against the Republican Party than it is to run against the Conservative Party. And that's what a lot of their wedge issues do come down to. It's issues which are salient in the Canadian media through the United States. So when we talk about abortion, for example, the Conservative Party will never legislate on abortion. It's just it's too toxic of an issue. It, it, it won't happen. Um, the consensus in Canada is overwhelmingly the other way. It's it's not going to occur. But the Liberal Party, every election, still drags out abortion. And the reason for that is because it's always an issue from the United States. It's free press amplification for them every single time. And I believe that the Liberal Party now, uh, 
during the majority government, they were a lot more moderate on firearm issues. Uh, I didn't really have many concerns. I, I certainly had, there were flaws with Bill C-71, but I didn't have many concerns with the overall liberal approach to firearms from, say, 2015 to 2019. Uh, where it really came was afterwards, and I believe that a significant portion of that came with minority governments, um, partly because they realized the success of the firearm wedge issue against Aaron O'Toole, but partly because the Liberals are really an urban party now. They've retreated to these relatively urban ridings. They have a few rural ridings, especially in the East Coast, but, but by and large, they're an urban party now. And it puts everyone else in a really tricky position, but not the Liberals. So when the Liberals talk about gun control, they can talk to people in downtown Toronto who pretty much agree on this issue. Most of them have never seen a gun. They might know a hunter, but not really too much beyond that. Um, they do see the news about stabbings all the time and shootings, so that affects them. Um, but that's really the core constituency uh, for gun control. The Conservatives have a lot of rural seats, so the cons but they need to win those, uh, those suburban Toronto seats to be able to uh, form government and conservatives generally need either a majority or a very strong minority government in Canada to be able to govern. So this issue serves to make suburbanites just a little uncomfortable, just enough of them that the liberals can still win and hold their kind of outposts in the outside of cities. It also, and I think this is an advantage for the liberals that they, it might've surprised them a bit, but it certainly is something that's relevant it's a very tricky issue for the ndp and to a lesser extent the bloc because both of these parties are both very urban and quite rural so the ndp is you know they want seats like beaches east york they want davenport they want burnaby but they also want timmins they also want um algoma they also want nunavut in the northwest territories and it's really, it puts them in a really hard position to have to balance those two constituencies without losing one of them. And I think the liberal and the block too, I, the block's a bit of a different, a bit of a different player, but it puts both of those parties in a, in a relatively tough position where they really have to straddle that line between hunters and their urban constituencies. And the liberals just don't really have a rural constituency constituency anymore outside of just a couple of ridings and including mine, actually. Um, so yeah, it see, that's, doesn't matter to them. That's interesting because in British Columbia, at the provincial level, like our the NDP party is government um, and conservatives, um, you know, are the, are the main the main opposition. But it's almost like here the NDP are mostly the urban ridings so it's the same thing that it like the liberals so it's the lower mainland Vancouver um, and some parts of the interior uh, where the conservatives are more um, uh, eastern so the eastern half of the province towards Alberta a lot more rural rural ridings and and, and that sort of stuff so so it's interesting just in BC that the provincial NDP party is, I, I think they're not caught in that same thing that the federal NDP party is that you're talking about being split between a rural and a, uh, um, 
and an urban environment. If if there is an NDP riding like sort of next door to me in the West Kootenay area of British Columbia, it's it's one of those areas where you know, um, gosh, how, how do you how do you put it politically correct, you know, or whatever? But it's like you know, people will line if I just say, well, there's a lot of granola freaks there, you know, just yeah, sort of I, like, it's, it's that type of a culture, right? I was, like the I West was just Kootenays. in Nelson visiting. Uh, <laughs> oh, are you? Okay. Okay. So, so, August, you know, so, yeah. the, the Rastafarian shops and, you know, and all, all, all this kind of stuff, you know, but there's yeah. still resource people there. There's still hunters yeah. and stuff there, but that's an NDP held area. NDP um, even though, conservative federally. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it would be, um, you know, it would be considered a rural riding, but with a very probably urban ideology within an ur- urban area. So it's it's NDP held. And um, yeah, it's God, that stuff is so yeah. it's so crazy. So do, do, does this mostly kind of shake down to like this seems to be what I'm hearing from you is like the reason that guns are being singled out is it's a. It's a political positioning tactic for re-election. Yep. The liberals have historically seen gun control as a fantastic political football that they can kick around in elections and divide up the conservatives very nicely from the suburban ridings they need and form a wedge to a lesser but still effective extent between the NDP. So if the NDP, and to put this in BC terms, uh, if they... They better take a strong position on gun control if they want Victoria, but then they're going to lose Skeena Buckley Valley. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So it, wow. the liberals love putting them in that spot. And so then the average person's caught in, in the middle of this. Like you're just, like you said, you're, yeah. you know, you're yeah. a quiet little person that goes to the gun range and likes to shoot and blink and do whatever and go home and just quietly, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because um, one of my daughter's like really close friends, um, early twenties, uh, they went to school together. Um, it, it's my daughter's friend's younger sister, which was, you know, kind of part of the, part of the group. It was like a whole bunch of us were at a family get together in a restaurant one time. And, and she was there, the younger, the younger sister and was sitting there and kind of talking and stuff. And it's like, this topic of gun control came up and she is like a hardcore firearm owner. Now I've known her since she was like, our kids went to school, like kindergarten grade one. And I remember her like, you know, the, this quiet little girl and, you know, and stuff. And it's like, she's got like her handguns and she goes to the range and shoots. And she's like, she can talk about these issues, like very, very informed which blows me away. Like a firearm owner is very informed about all this stuff. And, and I just think of that poor person, you know, that if you did not sit and talk to her and just saw her like walk by in the street or a restaurant, you wouldn't have went, Oh, that's a gun owner. That's a handgun owner. Right. And so now a person like that is just caught a young person is caught up in this political chess game in someday she's going to have to give up that handgun and she can never get another one if she really likes it or wanted to go more competitive or whatever. Same with the hunter. 
you know, just sort of like minding their business, doing things, helping out with wildlife projects here and there in their spare time. And now they're caught up in, you know, this, this huge thing, which boils down to, like I said, a political jockeying type, type tactic. And what a, what a (laughs) crappy thing to put Canadians through. I don't think people realize quite how serious a lot of this is. And and that includes in the hunting community. People look at, at these, um, these bands and say, Oh, well, you know, like, ah, it sucks. And you know, I won't be able to use it anymore or so on. There are criminal penalties associated with unauthorized possession of a firearm. And they're quite substantial. That's it's the potential for multiple years in prison, just for possession of something that you purchased. Once that amnesty expires, you purchase something legally. It's been sitting in your safe, you have not done anything with it. You, you know, you don't hand it in with the amnesty. And now, I mean, I, I can't imagine. I, I, having looked back at some compliance figures from other countries and so on, I can't imagine that the compliance will be super high in Canada. And that's partly a factor of social trust, which I, I, is a pet issue of mine, which I'd probably discuss further a bit later on. But, uh. Like that's if if you don't if you forget if if you don't hand it in it's that's a significant prison term and I think once this is where opinions of these laws start to change when it's a little bit too late it's like when we saw the long gun registry people were you know people were pretty okay with it at first I think people underestimated how popular it was outside of the hunting uh, and sporting communities and even within um, but then people started to see the cost overruns they started to see the potential consequences that were associated with having an unregistered firearm. And they got a little bit uncomfortable and then, you know, the long gun registry went away. And that's, it's a bit of a simplification, but I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, I, I just want to come back briefly, though, to, to a point, because I think this segues into, into the confusion and that I was talking about in my article in the line and how opaque Canadian firearms law is and how difficult it is. You, you're mentioning that, uh, uh, your daughter's friend needed to be like very in tune to this. And that is in part just because of how ludicrously complicated it is and how difficult it is if you get something wrong. So I was talking in my article about how the RCMP firearms lab classifies variants. And that is a, it's a heck of an issue because it, it really feels a lot of the time and to be completely honest, their internal documents that I obtained through an access to information request do sort of make this case. It really feels like they're spinning the wheel to an extent when they're deciding if a firearm is non-restricted, restricted, or prohibited. And it could be, this could be changed. Um, their classification could change. Um, it might not necessarily be something you're predicting. It can lead to really weird circumstances where if you... Um, where the prohibitions are based solely on appearance. Like if you take a Mossberg Blaze, this is the most egregious one, and you buy it and you put a little plastic clamshell on it to look like an AK, you're still good to go, still an unrestricted firearm. But if you buy that Mossberg Blaze in the form of the Blaze 47, um, exactly the same, same plastic clamshell around the outside. That's the only difference, just that plastic clamshell. Uh, it's a prohibited AK-47 variant. <laughs> so, and you're in possession of a prohibited firearm. So it's it's just a, it's a wildly confusing uh, system and set of regulations when you really delve down into it. 
and there's not really an incentive to fix it. Okay, that that's interesting. Yeah, like hey, I've I've talked before in in other podcasts about this thing that's being flagged by sort of the pro gun lobby of the use of this term variant, uh, and that it has no legal definition, and it's just kind of like, you know. One make and model of firearm is prohibited, and then a bunch more are said, well, there are variants of that one, but like what what is the criteria that one's a variant? And I, the analogy I used to make this simple for listeners was it's like saying, you know, all of a sudden you come up with legislation and say, well, a, um, uh, a side-by-side ORV, recreational vehicle, off-road vehicle, is a variant of a car right? Four wheels, motor, steering wheel. And then it's like, okay, well then uh, a baby carriage is a variant of a car because it's got four, and then a skateboard is a variant, uh, you know, and then it's sort of like a unicycle is a variant of, of a car, right? And then you're sitting there listening to me say this and going, well, what, what the hell's the criteria? Like, you know, the, the, the off-road vehicle in the car, well, that makes that makes sense. But now a skateboard and a car, how, how are those things related other than they have round wheels, you know? And, but that's the situation we have with this thing in the, in the gun laws of, of a variant and nobody knows. It's just a, whatever someone decides. Yep. There's and, and, and the thing is it's, there's no criteria. And this is the, this is the part about it. That's a little bit now, unless one was developed since I, put my access to information request through and I received a response. There's no criteria. Uh, it's a continuum, but how this continuum is applied is vastly different and it can change based on whichever RCMP technician, you know, happens to see the firearm. It can differ whether they've had their morning coffee or not. It's or whatever incident happens. And, and this is what concerns me is so in, in the assault weapon ban, they brought in that muzzle energy thing, 10,000 joules, and they scooped in the Weatherby Mark V in like the the 416 Rigby and a few of those really big caliber guns, and they're prohibited firearms in the country now. Standard Woodstock bolt action rifle. So now at any point in the future, if tomorrow there was a shooting somewhere in the country where a person just used a standard Woodstock bolt action hunting firearm to commit a crime, they could now say, well, that's a bolt action. It's a variant of the Mark V, which is already prohibited. And then they could scoop a whole bunch of bolt action firearms as variants. And people are going like, well, what the heck? And as, and as I understand it, unless I'm wrong, the RCMP could do that. Yeah. So this is a bit of a, a bit of a more difficult and tricky legal area um, and an area where you m- might want to ask a lawyer instead for an interpretation. The government's, the government's interpretation of this is that it's limited only to those calibers above 10,000 joules of muzzle energy and only those. So the Weatherby Mark V, uh, and, and the term variant doesn't doesn't come into play there, isn't supposed to come into play. So the Weatherby um, Mark V in 416 or in um, 
of trying to offhand, I think a 460 Weatherby. Um, that's, yeah, that's prohibited, and it's been prohibited since 2020 in the Ordering Council, and they're seeking to codify that in the legislation so that it can't be easily repealed. Um, the government's interpretation is that all Weatherby's uh, Mark 5s and 300 Win Mag, for example, would be totally fine. Uh, I have seen alternative opinions on that front, so I'm hesitant to make a determination one way or another. I think the government, the federal government, does sincerely believe that they are only prohibiting those above 10,000 joules of muzzle energy. Whether that is how it plays out 10, 15 years down the line, uh, if something happens, when something happens, is I'm always a bit hesitant to to provide an opinion. Uh, in the future because of some some things that I've seen in this that frankly are utterly nonsensical and, and to me don't appear to have any kind of basis in rationality. And this always seems to be the way in our country is like stuff like this is developed in law. Um, it's confusing and then something happens and it ends up in court. And then a judge judge then determines and then we go on with case law, right? So, you know, for example... There have been, or there was, in the amendments to C-21, some 22 caliber firearms. Now, had those gone through and become prohibited for whatever reasons they were prohibiting them, would the 22 caliber in itself be vulnerable to being considered a variant of a 22 that was already, because of its caliber, and then... Everybody that owns a 22 all of a sudden own a variant of a prohibited firearm. Uh, likely not. So I can okay. I can reassure you on that. Um, okay. That that shouldn't be the case from unless they submit radically different wording in the next amendments. That shouldn't be the case. Okay. Okay. Um, it does lead us to another interesting point, though. Um, where how so if the government says that something is a variant in an order in council or in legislation, it is. Period. There's no, uh, that's not an RCMP determination anymore. That's if the government tells them. So when we, yeah. So when we look down the list of what are considered AR-15 variants, we see a number of, uh, I think the Mossberg 715T um, rifle, which is, you know, the Mossberg plinker, plinkster. Yeah, that's a case where the internal workings are nothing like an AR-15. Um, the version of it without the tactical-looking furniture is totally fine, non-restricted. But since the tactical clamshell, again, was named... They have a particular fascination with Mossberg's clamshells for some reason. Uh, it Since it was named as an AR-15 variant, it is, even though it's not. Right, Yeah. right. And, and and I guess that's where the worry comes in for gun owners. If you go, well, if that was how the term variant is applied, then it's kind of like it's a wild card from here on out then. Yeah. And to an extent, I mean, that's been the, that's been a wild card since the Firearms Act was introduced without defining variant. Uh, so that's something I think gun owners have to an extent been living with for, you know, 30 years. Uh, it does. It is something that needs to be fixed, just to ensure that level of clarity in legislation. Even just by introducing some sort of standard and regulation that the RCMP needs to follow. Um, I, 
I it's not my it's not my main concern when it comes to the amendments. Um, a big, but it does overlap with the arbitrary nature of it. So when we had Amendment G four, it was everything that was, you know, a firearm that was designed to accept a magazine of five rounds or more, which is an interesting definition of itself. Because when we're talking about a firearm that was designed to accept a magazine of over five rounds, even though no magazines over five rounds are legal for that firearm in Canada or available, it would still be prohibited. But a firearm that has 10 round magazines available, not necessarily in Canada, but somewhere in the world, but was originally designed for a five round magazine would be totally fine. And it's still a weird and wacky definition. But leaving that aside, G46, by definition, that's what they call the list, contained firearms that simply weren't meeting that definition at all. So the M1 Garand, single shots, the SKS um, does does not meet that definition yet. The, the, The rocket launchers, I mean, the rocket launchers is pretty egregious. They put all those on there to, uh, to, basically bump the number up to 1500 but the ammunition was always illegal in canada like you could own it i mean not that you would ever be able to find one but you could theoretically own a javelin missile system before 2020 you could never own a javelin missile you would never be able to use it it's an empty tube it's it's and and that ammunition was always controlled and very strictly controlled in canada so yeah you could have a grenade launcher but you couldn't shoot anything more dangerous than a tennis ball and and yeah, that's so that was a, that was another political angle of the cons- where you know the conservatives repeal that order in council. The conservatives just legalized rocket launchers, despite the fact that that's not really the case. Yeah, um, and I, I think that does segue us a little bit into the mass casualty commission report. Maybe if if you want to talk sure. about that. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I'm definitely interested in that one, especially the stuff we were talking at, at about at the beginning of the show. Not, not the RCMP-related findings, but all of these additional sets of recommendations, which mm-hmm. everything I've seen, people are just saying, well, that's the two amendments to C-21 word for word in the Mass Casualty Commission report. Yep. Sort of like that's the, 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 the rationale for the Liberal Party to re- reintroduce those, those bills is kind of the vibe i've been getting off of various folks but mm-hmm. g- give us your thoughts give us your thoughts on those additional recommendations and okay. general so, firearm owners of the country yeah so i i won't get into the uh the rest of the report it's a it's a very long report it's very lengthy and i haven't um i haven't read in full the sections on policing and so on but i of course went straight to the firearm section as soon as i yeah. was able yeah, I uh, did too. That's my specialty. <laughs> it's a very interesting collection. And I think that the reason it's it's very one-sided. Um, and just to talk about a few aspects of, of things that the commission recommends, which I, I should add, these are not things that the government will necessarily do. In a few cases, they're things I think a government can't do in a few cases i think there are things that the government could probably do but would be so much more trouble than it's worth that they probably wouldn't try um but 
the list of recommendations. Yes, number one. Um, interestingly, they said this report had nothing to do with C21. Um, recommendation number C21 is <laughs> in the report is the definition from G4, word for word, with the addition of semi-automatic handguns. So it's a it's a essentially a cut and paste job. Uh, so that's all that's in there. Don't want to speculate yeah, as to why the they put that in semi-automatic there. Semi-automatic five-round clip, exactly what we were seeing. Yep. In the in the C twenty-one amendment, so that was mm -hmm. the SKS hunting firearm that everybody talked about got scooped by that one, and yep. that's back as a recommendation in the Mass Casualty Commission report. Uh, yeah, and there there are a few other ones where it gets really uh, odd. And where we're getting well beyond things that have ever really been considered in Canada. So, and a few of these recommendations are worded in such a way where the initial topic seems a little bit innocuous. And then you delve into what it would actually mean and it gets quite ridiculous. So, for example, ammunition. They talk about requiring a license to possess ammunition. I don't think many people disagree with that. I think when you're implementing it in practice, that's the kind of situation where you end up in a lot of potentially people getting in a lot of trouble because a lot of people actually possess, you know, a round or two of 22 that they grabbed from somewhere like the range. Um, they let their license expire, instant criminal. Um, or maybe you, you know, found a really cool 50 BMG round and you give it to someone as a, as a gift and they're a criminal. So that's, that's one of those issues where you get into the implementation. But then they have only being able to buy ammunition, this is one of the recommendations, for a firearm of the caliber for which you own. Um, it's probably something that they intend to cut down on straw purchasing and ammunition. Uh, it, it's not really workable in the sense that plenty of people collect ammunition. They like to buy for um, calibers they don't own. But it also requires a firearm registry. There is no possible way to enforce that without a firearm registry and without instant access to a firearm registry. So this is a recommendation to reintroduce the long gun registry, despite that not being an actual recommendation in the report. That's very concerning. I did my master's thesis on the impact of the long gun registry on homicide in Canada. There was no impact whatsoever. Um, very expensive and... I'll, I'll segue for a little bit out here. Well, no, I, I won't. <laughs> I'll keep going before I get too off track yet. But then they also talk about purchase limits on ammunition. Purchase limits on ammunition are something that sounds excellent to people who have never touched a gun in their lives and is very, very stupid to anyone who knows something about this topic. They talk about Australia as their logic for implementing ammunition purchase restrictions. As far as I'm aware, no Australian state currently sets a hard limit on the amount of ammunition a person can buy. And it's something that's not particularly practical to enforce or that we would see bring any kind of benefit. And I'll give an illustration of that. So. When it comes uh, when it comes to having you know, an arsenal of ammunition, someone will often quote, you know, oh, they had a thousand rounds. That's a 
high arsenal of ammunition for this one gun. Okay. A snow goose hunter in the Northwest Territories. The limit for snow goose hunting for residents of the Northwest Territories is 50 a day with no possession limit. If an indigenous hunter um, living in Fort Simpson, which is about eight, hour, eight hours by road from Yellowknife, wants to snow goose hunt for a number of people in Fort Simpson and share out that meat, they might shoot, let's say they're as, let's let's be rude to them and say they're as bad a shot as I am. <laughs> you need uh, 400 rounds to get yeah. 50 geese. Well, that's, that's, and that's your one that's, day. That's me. Yeah, that's why that's, duck hunting's fun. Exactly. So to get, yeah, to get their 50 geese, they use four or 500 rounds of ammunition. 500 rounds of 12 gauge, I actually did the math on this, is about 50 pounds. It's quite a lot. So no, like it's way more than any, and, and we, we know this from observing events, it's way more than mass shooters carry. Um, so realistically, with ammunition purchase limits, Either you set the limit so high that it's completely nonsensical for preventing the type of crime they say they want to prevent, or it's so low that this individual in Fort Simpson who's snow goose hunting will need to drive eight hours to Yellowknife to buy more 12 gauge and then back. And then and, back, yeah. And then back, yeah. and then back. And if, yeah. when I saw that one with the thousand limit, I just was thinking of myself. It's like, well, I bought some 22 ammunition and I bought a brick which is yep. 500 rounds and they're lead so I'll use those like for target shooting or whatever and then it's like and because it's economical like like mm -hmm. anything like you buy yep. buy one box you might as well buy more because then the price per, per shell comes down and then it's like well then I got access to buying monolithic copper bullets so no lead in them for actual small game hunting when it mm -hmm. comes to the whole issue of lead and lead contamination in the environment. So I bought a brick. Yep. So just in my 22 rounds, I've got a thousand. And then if I just bought one box of shotgun shells, I got a thousand and 25. Yep. So yep. what do I do? Do I, do I go and shoot a whole box of 22s off or throw them in the garbage? Right? Like, well, then we get into the enforceability of it. How do you enforce that? Um, yeah. is it just a random spot check where, uh, or is it going to be, you know, you have to return your shells, your casings, which I, I don't think would ever happen, but, but in, yeah. So in terms of enforceability, this is something that's not possible. And it's something that if the commission had genuinely engaged with people who, uh, were able to talk to them from across the spectrum, they would have known this. It would have been very clear and obvious to them. It's, it's you know, something that you can talk to any hunter and this will come up, especially up here where distances are so far and shipping is so difficult. So why didn't they do that? And it also comes up when they talk about secure storage facilities. Now, this is a really interesting recommendation. So they recommend secure storage facilities in, in communities which have problems arranging storage. And there are two ways to read that. So the example they give when they're detailing the logic for this in the report is uh, American programs to provide free gun lockers to um, poor communities. Now, that's not a bad idea. I don't think anyone in Canada would, would oppose the government providing free gun lockers um, to enhance 
you know, reduce the risk of accidents, for example, or unauthorized access to a firearm. But the wording they actually use in the recommendation is secure storage facilities in communities where storage is a barrier. And that reads a lot like a proposal for central storage in limited circumstances, which gets a lot of gun owners quite uncomfortable and a little bit riled up. Right. And so, sensibly. So the, the free storage lockers would be like the the stack right gun cabinet that you get a Canadian tire that you know that holds six six firearms or whatever it's like mm-hmm. it's 200 bucks yep. they they could they could give those out versus a concrete bunker somewhere in the middle of town and it's like you'd check in and check out your firearm each morning and evening when when you go go to and come back from the field from hunting yeah, which facility is totally, versus a locker. Okay. Yeah, which is totally illogical and practical. And this is this is an instance where I'm I'm genuinely not sure what they meant here, but it is very very odd wording, and it's wording that if this had been run by something that somebody that knows anything about the firearm issue, they would have quickly flagged and caught that as a potential concern. So, and this is where I get into how this report was drafted. When we look through these recommendations, there are some valid recommendations. There are some valid recommendations which already exist, such as a hotline for, they recommend introducing a hotline for firearm-related concerns, which anyone who's called the Canadian Firearms Program knows has existed for 20 years. Uh, So this is already a thing that exists. Wasn't there the recommendation that you should have to show ID to purchase ammunition? Uh, or to be in possession of it. To be in possession. So, so to have a license to be in possession of ammunition. Because you have to show your pal in order to buy it. Yeah. And that's been around for a while. Yeah. So they, I, I was like, what the heck is that? I was like, don't we already have that? So they they do want to show a license, that individuals show a license to be able to purchase some gun parts, which I believe will be an amendment to C21. Coming back to that discussion a little bit. Uh, that would be magazines and so on. There are a few ways they can implement that. That can range from the, okay, you show your license, it makes no difference, to going through the verification system they've set up, which could be wildly impractical. We'll we'll see what they do there and without getting into speculation. But uh, the Mass Casualty Commission report on firearms is is not great and it's not great from a research quality perspective it's not great from a um, sort of a neutrality perspective and i'll be writing a bit more on this in the future but i've seen a characterization um, generally hesitant to call people out by name but um, by dr brown uh, who wrote the canadian history of um, firearms for the commission essentially and he characterized the the commission as well, the Coalition for Gun Control and the um, Canadian, Fire, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights and all these groups just presented, everyone presented all the best research to them on all these topics, and they just so happened to align with the Coalition for Gun Control and everything, and and you know, just because their arguments made the most sense. But that's an utterly ludicrous proposition, and it's ludicrous for a few reasons. So the report... Um, I'll do a wider criticism of the Australian data that went into the report, but the Australian data is actually not very favorable toward a firearm ban. 
um, there's not very much good evidence that the uh, National Firearm Agreement in Australia did a whole lot to reduce instances of homicide or suicide generally. Um, there might be, if you if you kind of pick your data points, there was previously some evidence that it might have reduced mass shootings, um, but that's not really valid um, anymore for using more current numbers. There have been two in Australia recently, uh, which again, they were quite rare events before. So same as with Britain, if you're drawing these uh, these conclusions, you have to examine the relative rarity of the event before as well. So I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm planning on writing about that, but that'll, that'll be a bit in the future. Um, so it really seems when, when I'm reading this report, and I, I know they didn't go into all of the Australian research in very good detail, they flatly ignored Dr. Langman, who is the by far the best quantitative researcher on Canadian firearm homicide, and it's it's not it's not close. He's the authority. If you don't cite him, you cannot say you've engaged with Canadian research. It's that's that's just how it is. So when you know all of these things about the background of this report and see the Coalition for Gun Control's policy statement come out of that with the Liberal Party of Canada's uh, exact amendment text in Amendment G4, it's hard to look at this section of the Commission's report like it was a, you know, sort of a neutral discussion of the best, yeah, independent discussion of the best evidence and so on. And that's not a great look. I would also argue that it's, I, I saw it characterized by Tristan Hopper in the National Post as an example of mission creep. I think that's the, I think that is uh, certainly what happened. The individual in question who committed these atrocities smuggled his firearms. They were not legally obtained. There's no, um, there's no evidence that these restrictions would have made any kind of a difference. Uh, and I also saw it characterized by Dr. Noah Schwartz, um, who is a professor at the University of Victoria who I have not worked with, but I, I very much respect his opinion on these matters. Um, he called it uh, motivated reasoning, which I think is a generous but accurate description of the report's recommendations. This is not to impeach the integrity of the people who, of the commissioners themselves. I don't, I, I don't know their backgrounds. I don't know what motivated them. But unfortunately, when it comes to this kind of work. If your evidence inputs are slanted, your evidence outputs are going to be garbage. And that is unfortunately what happened in this case. The inputs were geared toward a particular side of the debate. They did not hear from some authorities who would have provided a contrary view, which is very relevant. And the what came out of it just isn't really worth the paper it's written on. So this kind of comes back to our earlier discussion kind of about like the political tactics that are involved here is uh, it's almost like I, I could do this because it's like I can think this way now. So however it happened, whether there was federal liberal government influence over the recommendations 
uh, or whether there was a desire from the commission side to produce something that the liberals that would the liberals know they could use to support C21 and moving forward. However, it happened. There's clearly it's supporting, you know, the liberal government's gun ban. Now, knowing that the conservative party is going to come out and highlight and flag all these things and go at the liberal government over it, they the liberal government can now very easily turn that against the try to turn that against the conservatives to be like how insensitive Canada's worst mass shooting. Look at all these families that sat there, um, you know, th- through the hearings and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, how can you, you know, like they'll, they'll pit their argument over the gun control parts against the tragedy of what happened in the people and try to, you know, in the, in the public's eyes, make the conservatives look, callous right and 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 so i see that getting that argument into the mass casualty report was almost like a really good buffer because you've got this this shield of turning it back against the conservatives going oh my god like do you not feel sorry for all the people that were killed in the show why are you criticizing this report right like it it almost seems like another god like tactic is all i can call it <laughs> yeah well i don't know maybe it's yeah, that again <laughs> I, I agree i think the conservatives need to be very very careful in how they approach this i think that the liberal party certainly does see this as the addition of a shield because you can now say oh well these independent experts recommended it it must be it must be the right thing to do we had this whole commission we spent 26 million dollars on it this is it, it can't be wrong but the problem is they did talk to a lot of experts. They didn't speak to a lot of people. They didn't take into account a significant portion of firearm research. You know, when you're talking about Australian data, um, Baker, McFedrin, Lee, Swarty, like these are all um, important authors who've written important research on this subject. And I, I don't feel that they were substantively dealt with. Um, and I don't feel that there are objections to the uh the proponents of efficacy of the National Firearms Agreement. Well, okay, and I'll give a good example, actually. In 2006, um, Chapman and Alpers, and Alpers is one of the people who contributed to the report on the Australian data, um, wrote a paper which is commonly cited by gun control advocates as evidence for the success of the Australian National Firearms Agreement. The problem is that their measures on homicide never actually reached statistical significance. So this paper is being cited as this, you know, oh, well, it clearly worked. But even that paper does not show an effect on homicide. Yeah, so we, we're in a very unfortunate circumstance based on that. Now, I think, and, and I, I bang, on, bang on a lot about social trust uh, and its importance to democracy and its importance to a functioning state. And this sounds like a segue that's pretty substantial, but I think the MCC report really highlights the deficiencies in our existing system and in how we're approaching institutions right now and the level of trust in institutions and how that's declining in Canada. Um, 
this is partly there's some anecdotal evidence here there's a little bit of my you know political science background and, and security background coming coming to play here um, but i don't think people realize that social trust is a currency which in a democracy is not an optional extra it's critical to the functioning of the whole system um the loser of a particular debate needs to con needs uh, we're founded on the idea of losers consent so we have an election somebody else wins okay your idea doesn't get to happen now um but you know we talked about it we thought of our values we thought of um societal evidence and we thought of the evidence we thought of uh, societal issues and uh we're gonna go with that and then the loser says well okay yeah everyone voted fine all right and that's sort of how it's supposed to work um and you're also supposed to trust in your neighbor it also applies to crime when we're talking about crime um our system of laws is it's maybe a dirty little secret to people who aren't uh don't have a research background in this but it's predicated on the idea that most people are not committing crimes and will not commit crimes. There's a very relatively small proportion of people who do. And our criminal justice system is sort of focused on dealing with that. But if people stop complying with the law on a more widespread basis, it all falls apart. And that's very, very, very dangerous for how we govern society. And where I've been raising this red flag is that I've noticed a massive decline in social trust in the firearm community certainly over the time since i mean c68 passed when i was three years old so i wasn't noticing a lot around then but certainly in adulthood and as i started studying the issue i noticed this decline and i've noticed it accelerating substantially in a few areas of society but especially when it comes to the firearm community in the context of the sort of one two three punch that we've seen with the order and council um, the handgun freeze and then these amendments and the worry that I have is that we had a system that, broadly speaking, the overwhelming majority of gun owners were interested in complying with. And now I have heard a massive tonal shift from a fair variety of people that went from, well, you know, like, okay, order and council sucks, but it's that's okay, I can deal with that, it'll be fine, to, oh, the handgun freeze okay well i don't i don't you know that's that feels like they're really going after sports shooters to now with these hunting amendments people say okay i'm not i'm not gonna hand in anything you know and i i don't necessarily think that's a massive short-term public safety risk that's not what i'm saying i do think it's concerning when the government is passing laws in such a in a way that's seen as so disrespectful and polarizing that individuals then feel alienated and unwilling to comply with those laws. I think that has bad ramifications for our society as a whole. And I think it's very important that individuals on all sides of the debate consider how they can depolarize that. Now, the Mass Casualty Commission did raise one really good point, and that is the need to depolarize gun ownership and gun control as political topics. Their solution to that was to give the Coalition for Gun Control whatever they wanted, uh, <laughs> which I don't think is a really practical <clears throat> yeah, solution. Yeah, depolarize it by having no gun ownership in the country. So That was effectively their suggestion, yes. Uh, okay. Depolarize no, it by nothing, limiting nothing it to, to be polarized. a couple hunters, exactly. Um, 
yeah that that is really how it came across but there i do think that the fundamental point is accurate um there was really a need here to listen with respect um and i think individuals on all sides of this debate fundamentally maybe except for a few want the same thing we want improved public safety um we want to preserve the legal well not not everyone but want to preserve legal use of firearms uh, certainly for people who need it um and you know we want we want good government we want a functioning democratic society where everyone you know kind of gets along uh despite the fact we can have debates over contentious social issues and that has to start with the government taking some responsibility and really genuinely trying to listen and understand the position of hunters and sports shooters and why they're so frustrated and angry and meet them halfway um which i i think i think a lot of people in the sports shooting community feel like they've already met the government halfway two or three times over yeah yeah no that's those are some really good points. And, you know, I think one of the things I've seen that speaks to that way you've just said about, like, the importance of this vibe of losing trust is this motto that's sort of floating out there around right now in the in the gun community in Canada. Uh, it's even on T-shirts and stuff. We're not the problem. So that that, to me, really speaks to the fact that you're drawing a circle around a group of good people, law-abiding citizens and moms and dads in this country and saying you're bad people because you own firearms, right? And they're not bad people. They're, they work in hospitals. They teach in your schools. They put your fires out. They pick up people that have had heart attacks and take them to the hospital and, you know, all this stuff that we want from good people in, in our country, but they're, they're getting marginalized and, you know, that could happen anywhere. And like, gosh, we, we do see it in other things. It's sort of like when it comes to climate change and emissions and it's like, well, it's all those people that own the trucks, you know, big trucks with big tires and diesel trucks. Right. It's like all of a sudden they're like, look, you know, I was like, I got a truck because I haul firewood and I carry things, right? I'm not the problem. And we, it, it's like this is act being echoing in a number of different areas, I think, in society is like, let's, let's peg, you know, this on a group of people. And uh, yeah, I can see how how that can start to destabilize things, you know, in a, in a democracy in a much, in a, in a, in a much bigger way, especially when it is alienating the people that own the firearms, which has always been the big thing down in the States, right? It's like, what, what was the one I just saw the other day? It's like, there's 300 million firearms in the United States and excess of a trillion rounds of ammunition. If we were the problem, you'd know about it. Right. Like like that, you know, is is a real um, is a real consideration in the United States for keeping things balanced, because I probably do believe because of their culture and their history and stuff and the militias and stuff. And what we saw with the Capitol Hill riot, that there things are pretty fragile. You know, they're f going towards a, 
you know, a revolution sort of, sort of idea. And yeah, I just, I hate seeing that narrative being developed around people that are good and a segment of the society's like they hate people. They hate gun owners. They say horrible things about them on social media. Right. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with these people. And yeah, that's, that's an interesting, an interesting thought in all of this. And, and as you know, in your experience in politics, if something comes up, any topic, and it's like, this side's at the government to make a decision this way, this side's at the government to make a decision this way, the government has to take it away, mull it over, they come out and make an announcement, you know, the old joke, if both sides are pissed off, then the government knows that it's made the right decision because they're always balancing off, you know, the greatest good for the most, but making sure that everybody's accommodated in their society where this doesn't really seem to necessarily be the case right now. And in the country where, where we know the government's going to come out and say, okay, at the end of the day, we've listened to this side and that side, and we're splitting the middle here. It doesn't seem like there's a willingness federally right now to, to split the middle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I would concur with that. I, and mm. I think that's partly down to the, the political issues that we discussed earlier. and Of getting reelected, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the short-term thinking that's inherent in that. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, we talk a lot about polarization in the country and how things like social media contribute to that and so on. In this case, I, I think the federal government is actively contributing in this issue. I, I, I would agree that, you know, your average pal holder in Canada, from a statistical perspective, from a research perspective, is they're not the problem. They're, that's not really where um, certainly we're going to get the most bang for our buck, focusing on, you know, where our public safety dollars go. It's not on, it's not on people who lawfully own firearms. Um, I think and, and some folks will disagree with me on this that I that I think are perfectly reasonable. There's a lot of reasonable disagreement in academia. Um, but generally speaking, where we see the most bang for a buck in firearms, in my view, is basic barriers to access. And, and I mean basic. Um, licensing, safety training, safe storage, these things are... are generally aspects and licensing I'm using mostly as a proxy for background checks and training. Uh, these are things which do have some impact. They can, they can be good for society. Um, they can be good from a public safety perspective, but then getting into the more draconian, like counting your rounds of ammunition and banning mm. particular types of guns. Once you've actually controlled who gets a gun and made sure they're, you know, they're not a violent person, made sure that they're not, um, a straw purchaser and so on you've, you've done the proper background check at that point you've probably got about as much bang for your buck as you're going to get in terms of public safety dollars and at that point it's time to focus on other um, aspects where you will have greater reward and that is like the border border. border stuff and yeah okay yeah, gotcha. social causes of crime um, we hear a lot about uh, well, unfortunately, not in the political debate, but a lot in the research about addressing the demand side and thinking about this from an economic perspective. If you don't want something in society, you really addressing the supply. We, you know, you try it for 
they try for drugs with the war on drugs, addressing solely from a supply side angle doesn't really work that well. You need to address the demand side. And the government right now is focusing very intently on not just the supply side, but a, a minuscule proportion of the supply side by going after legal guns. Yeah. When they could be spending those resources focusing on the demand side and making a substantially greater impact as people who would otherwise use illegal weapons in general no longer um, feel the need or have other opportunities or yeah. are sober or, yeah. yeah. Knowing that you're, doesn't matter what you do, speed limits on highways or using AI to write your school assignment or whatever, it's like nothing's going to be 100% perfect, right? H humans always get around something some way, shape, or form. It's just you don't want the big obvious holes and things to be, why did someone not address this before? Um, I think that's, I think what a reasonable person in this country would, would want to know. Um, and, and I think those are messages that I think may be hard to be getting out to the non-gun hunting community in the country is all of this stuff that is reasonably in place and all these big things that are in place you know, they're there. Like, I mean, I do hear things like, yeah, you should have background checks. And it's like, well, we do. And it's like, well, they should be, they should have to have them stored safely. That was the big one after that. Um, it was, it was a shooting down in the States where like a little toddler got access to a firearm. Right. And it's like, and then up here, people were like, oh, you should, they should have to be stored securely and safely and locked up. And it's like, it is. And I, I almost feel like, these letting Canadians know of basically what's already in place, the level of knowledge about the current gun legislation is very, very low in this country among the non-gun holders. And I'd almost like to see a concerted effort to say a lot of these big picture things that are your concerns are actually already been in place for decades. Background checks, licensing, um, you know, these, these sorts of things. So... And this might blow your mind here a little bit, but the, uh, according to the, the better polling that I've seen, um, which I would add political polling on the popularity of firearm bans is, in my view, very selectively quoted in the report given to the uh, Mass Casualty Commission. But uh, looking at an Angus Reid poll from, I believe, 2021, what's really interesting is that the individuals uh, who sort of don't understand that are actually the older uh individuals in canada younger people are much more likely especially i mean young men but young women as well are actually much more likely um than older people to believe that you know our gun control laws in canada are about right that we do a pretty good job we get that we get the balance right and it's actually elderly people especially you know women over 55 who think that the laws here should be stricter so I think there is, there's, to a, in a sense, hope there. And I think as well, when you, when you give people the alternatives, and this, I think this is what happened at the long gun registry, when you say, look, we can spend money on this case, which in the best case, the best case, you might save a few lives, um, maybe. Instead of that, you know, Ban by banning by banning these guns, 
well, how about instead of that, we um, we use that, you know, $4 billion and buy every PAL holder in Canada a gun locker. And then we reduce accidents that way. Or we focus on the root causes. Or we spend that money ensuring that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police can call every single reference on a person's application instead of not doing it. And we know they, they don't call them all right now. So or conducting more thorough background checks. Like these are areas where I don't think gun owners would object. I mean, I've read the, obviously the, the firearm lobby groups differ in their solutions, but I've, I've read through some of their um, proposals and I, I don't realistically think that any of them would object to that. I, I certainly yeah. hope not. Yeah. And it would. Well, I know law yeah. enforcement people in this country, um, when they're hired and they go through all the things, they go through a psychological evaluation because they're going to be trained and issued a, a sidearm, sidearm, right? That's just law enforcement people. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be practical step of gun ownership in the country of, you know, pre-vetting someone if they have, you know, um, the the signals or the or the red flags as opposed to the you know, what we often see in the country is that after the fact, mm. the red flags were there, but nobody nobody acted on them. So that'd be a pretty big burden on our yeah. medical system, big, I think. Big is burden to, on the healthcare system there. Yeah, really, for first. everybody that wants a firearm license or renewal has yeah. got to make an appointment with, with a, well, a clinically trained um, person in that field. So, But the red flag um, part is, is important because the, the government has been putting a lot of time and energy into selling its red and yellow flag laws um, in this new legislation. But we, we have red flag laws. They're, uh, I believe it's section 117 of the criminal code. Um, they already exist. Um, a firearm officer, police officer, when they think there's danger, can enter and, and remove firearms. Uh, and the issue with the Mass Casualty Commission, um, which they did flag oh, when it came to the Nova Scotia shooting, is that this individual was reported multiple times and nobody followed up. You know, yeah. we have at least three separate reports saying he was yeah. um, in unauthorized possession, that he was doing illegal things, that he was a concern, he was a risk, and nobody acted. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And we do hear that in the U.S. cases a lot of people, shooters that were known to law enforcement for you know, issues and just slept through the cracks. So, yeah. So there's a lot we can do here. There's really a lot we can do. And I I don't want to leave on a hopeless note. Um, I do think there's plenty we can do to address crime and violence in this country. I do think there's a lot we can do to address um, the public health concerns that can come up when we talk about um, crime, violence, um, firearms, and so on, the problem is that right now the government's not doing that, and the government doesn't seem to have much of an intent to do that. Um, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, the one thing you can do is write to your MP. And I used to work in an MP's Hill office. I read all those letters. Uh, I know people think we are that they're not read. They're read. Um, and a member of parliament might not reply to you. And it doesn't matter what party it is. There are conservatives 
conservative MPs who are like, yeah, I don't care about semi-automatics, ban them all. Um, there are NDP MPs who are pro-gun. There are liberal MPs who are pro-gun. And But more importantly, most of them will not have really have a particularly strong view. But if they get a thousand letters on their desk, suddenly they do. And they will at least bring that to caucus. So I think the most important thing to do um, for hunters, even if we just end up getting a handgun freeze, I think it's important to note how much the sports shooting industry subsidizes hunting in this country. Oh yeah, um, no, it's it's big. I've talked about that yeah. before as well. Yep. So this is really a concern for anyone, and I think I think the Mass Casualty Commission report has really indicated what some of these groups want, whether it will work for public safety or not, which I do not believe it will, and I do not believe the evidence says it will. Um, we have a fairly detailed indication of what they want, um, and it will it will affect everyone at some point um yeah so write to your mp be respectful be polite and that, oh yeah. definitely that's always that's always a, a good one um it is hard you know to get engagement levels high um in in people writing their mps let alone going in and talking to them is even a more difficult you know thing to get the average person to do what else do you think firearm owners can do and hunters can do, uh, like, so on two fronts, um, when and where should they talk about this and to who, and where can people keep up on information? I know it's like, if, if you try to pick up your information and learn about this stuff off social media, like Twitter, like you're going to end up like hating your life. It's, it's a really, really vicious, um, forum. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like you want to go, you know, watch a badminton tournament and you accidentally end up in a UFC arena or whatever, right? Like it, that, that is, that to me is not the best place to go in search of truth. So, but I always believe people should stay educated about this stuff. Where should they get the best information of what these things mean that are coming out in the summaries and stuff? And then what, what should gun owners and hunters and stew do in their communities with their friends and neighbors? Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, for communities, um, I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. It, it's easy to say it's a little harder to do, but just talking to folks. I mean, I've, I've spoken to plenty of people who don't really know a lot about this issue or don't understand this issue. I would say, you know, a lot of my friends don't really care too, too much. Um, but really speaking to people, like, why is an ammunition limit a bad idea? Well, it's something that sounds to a non-gun non owner pretty good. Like, oh, yeah, they shouldn't have an arsenal. But when you actually explain it to them why it's not practical, I think most people go, oh, yeah, no, that's bad. So when it comes down to it, just just have a chat. Just talk to people. Um, be respectful. Acknowledge that the there is a difference in knowledge. Uh, I get in trouble with this a lot because this has been, you know, my academic interest for more than half a decade. So... I get into the issue where I'm getting really, really into the weeds with someone and they'll say, wait, wait, what, what's a barrel? 
where, where did what 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 do you mean muzzle energy and i'll go oh right enough to go back so you know keep in mind the knowledge level um talk to people talk to hunters and sport shooters and make sure they realize how their communities intertwine um and i think a lot of hunters don't really pay very close attention to a lot of this they just like some do some don't uh sport shooters really pay close attention to this so make sure to bridge those community gaps I think that's an important one and yeah just just speaking to people um disconnecting it from the american debate telling them how different things are in canada um and if you feel comfortable with it talking about the research in terms of how individuals can stay informed i agree that's pretty hard i've noticed a lot of extremely bad information in canadian mainstream media and from sources where I wouldn't expect to see poor information, such as the Globe and Mail wrote a really awful editorial about C21, with which was loaded with just incorrect, um, incorrect points, despite it being, I think, a fairly reputable paper overall. So that can be hard. Um, I would say parse and treat things with skepticism, look things up. As best you can a lot of these reports are public um, the amendments sort of in a semi-public state um, but they were still publicly accessible the mcc report is publicly accessible uh, in terms of research um, look for look for names that you uh, will see around in canadian research a lot dr langman is an excellent source um, very very talented researcher and statistician um watch the meetings well, you can watch them live they're streamed on the house of commons website you can yeah, keep I've, up to date with what's going i've on. watched some of them and i'm like oh my god sometimes it's frustrating but then you yeah, also learn points about okay what does this member of parliament need to know yeah and yeah. you can write them a letter and, and yeah so yeah i what was the one that got me like just after christmas time when one of the gun control advocates was was misusing um the term caliber and and it was like just yeah i was it was almost like just in shock of trying to talk about something in a group of firearms by the caliber and like that's not you know the the that what was being talked I can't remember quite the context but it was completely the wrong the wrong uh way to way to be talking about the issue and it was just sort of like you know what's a barrel what's a caliber right you know um so but but they are good to they <clears throat> they are good to, I've learned a lot about like really fine details by watching those meetings where somebody's like, okay, well, when this is about this on this exact firearm, what does that mean in this case? You know, and it's like, oh, that's a really good question. And then the answer is, well, we're not really firearm experts. We don't really know. And it's like, well, why is there the experts not here to answer our questions? I saw a bunch of that right after Christmas, but yeah. no, that's, that's a good one. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah Bob Zimmer. Yeah. I try to, uh, and, and people can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at Tim Thurley. That's T-A-M-T-H-U-R-L-E-Y. And I... <laughs> I do, I do my best. Twitter is a pretty toxic environment, but I do my best to stay as positive and polite as I can and hopefully give um, information that's 
as factual and grounded in sources well, that's, as possible. That's how I found, yes. So uh, good to know. Um, yeah, no, exa- exactly. So, you know, one of the, yeah. we'll, I'll see what you think to this. One of the things, one of the places for go-to information where I've always pointed people to that I think do a really good job are organizations like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Um, they tend to go through these things. They take their time. They develop really good statements uh, and put really good information back out to their membership. And of course, it's available to everybody, which I think very clearly explains a lot of these things, what they mean to gun owners, what they mean to hunters. And they're, they're not so far over on the gun control like side of things where they got like crazy memes and, you know, and, and, and these sorts of, you know, Canada, China government conspiracies and all this sort of stuff. They're just very honest, factual summaries of what this bill means, what that bill means, those sorts of things. And I think all of the, all of the federations, hunting and angling federations in the provinces, uh, are actually a really good go-to source. They just seem very down to earth and and very good at communicating these things back to the average gun owner. So, yeah, the Ontario Federation especially has has delivered some very, I think, excellent frequently asked questions and excellent factually neutral technical reports in this issue. Which yeah, they do I a was... great service to all of Canada rather than just Ontario. And I've said that before. Yeah. yeah. The reports that they issued, honestly, are the reports that should have come from the government of Canada. It's <laughs> yeah. the quality yeah. of reporting that we should have seen from the government and we didn't. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Oh man. What a, um, what a deep dive into this subject. Uh, it's two hours of blown, blown by here. I really hope you know, this really brings people up to speed on a whole bunch of aspects of the gun control debate. We're by no means seeing the light at the end of the tunnel yet on this. Uh, new developments could happen. We could wake up tomorrow morning and be some new development or whatever, and we'll be back together um, trying to figure out what it all means. But um, I really, really appreciate um, taking your time here to spend this quality time with our listeners and provide some thoughts and and we went down a lot of different rabbit holes and I think that's part of why this whole thing is just so so murky is there's so many tentacles to it and good stuff and bad stuff and political reasons and good gun safety stuff is mixed in here as well and oh appreciate it Tim really really appreciate your time and your thoughts Oh, I feel like I'm about th- a third of the way into my thoughts. So I. Uh, oh, I know, I know. So <laughs> I can't believe. Well, it's been let's. Two hours. Uh, let's. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's keep the books open, and when we have some new developments or stuff, we'll get back together. And um, I personally much prefer someone like yourself explaining these things to our listeners than me, because I'm not an expert in these things. And usually, what I'm trying to do is provide summaries of what I've seen people like you write and talk about and say, Hey folks, this is what's kind of going on high level on the gun debate in the country. But this is the first time I think I've really had a chance to dive into the gun control debate with an expert, you know, for a good solid two hours here. So really appreciate it. 
Nice. Well, yeah, happy to be here. If you need some more, I'll be happy to send you some names. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would love to talk about it as well with you. So No, absolutely. Yeah. Even just, even, you know, just one of the things we tend to try to do is to be one of those information providers, like a, a synthesis of information. Um, so produ producing infographics uh, is something we do. And like, so now this becomes, a, you become a very good resource for me to like, sort of like, okay, here's some numbers, this is what they mean, and then I can, you know, produce a very concise little infographic out there. And people love those because they become very powerful little tools for that thing we just mm -hmm. talked a few minutes ago about talk to your friends and neighbors about being a gun owner, about what yeah. some of this stuff means. And when you give people simple little facts in an infographic, um, their ability to talk about this thing from an evidence driven perspective you you just greatly give a lot of power to those folks so yep. um yeah that's uh that's something i think we maybe we can continue to work on out, outside of this and pick out some key key pieces of information and we'll we'll get that those numbers out to folks absolutely sounds good to cool. me cool yeah well thanks tim appreciate it and thanks for um me. i'll uh, oh you're welcome and i'll keep following you on Twitter and try to cut out the the other noise and chatter so uh, you do you do a really good job on on Twitter um, I know it is sometimes your buttons get pushed a little bit and you're kind of like oh maybe I shouldn't have quite worded a tweet quite like that but uh, you're 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 pretty good you're really really good actually so um, good job good job uh, helping all of gun owners out in this country well, happy to be here and hopefully I'm um, yeah, making a good contribution. Uh, I really appreciate your time. You bet. And hey, folks, if you got any questions, thoughts, or comments uh, after this episode, uh, drop me a line and uh, I can always get answers from Tim. But um, I always like when I hear from people that carry on this conversations via email. So um, most of you know how to find me. HC Media at thehunterconservationist.com. Love hearing you. Um, thoughts and from people across the country on, on these exact things. So thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. See you in the next episode.